This episode of the GR Project is brought to you in part by Oaklandish, an Oakland institution since 2000. Oaklandish's mission is to spread local love by way of their civic pride evoking teas and accessories, while creating quality inner city jobs for locals and giving back to the people and places that maintain our city's trailblazer spirit. In line with this mission, Oaklandish donates a portion of all proceeds to grassroots nonprofits committed to bettering the Oakland community. GR Project listeners can use the discount code GRProject10 at www.oaklandish.com and receive a 10% discount on their purchases. In turn, Oaklandish will donate 10% of these sales to Oakland schools through the Oakland Public Education Fund's A to Z Fund. This code is good only for online purchases and not in-store sales. So after you're done listening to the podcast, head over to oaklandish.com and support an Oakland business and school innovators. Welcome to the GR Project, an Oakland education innovation podcast hosted by Greg Klein and Randy Weiner. We seek to amplify the voices of a diverse range of educators who live and work in Oakland, California. Their stories are local, but inform national conversations. Our guests' intense personal experiences contribute to perspectives on the purpose of public education, illuminate polarizing assumptions, and challenge common and oppressive caricatures of educational stakeholders. We're glad you're here. Hello, 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 GR Project podcast listeners. Randy and I are back. Hi, Randy. How you doing? I am well, Greg. How are you? I am well. Uh, it's, it's fun to have uh, today's guest in. Uh, I've known her for a few years, uh, but Paula Mitchell is a force, uh, and, and it's been it's been amazing to get to to get to listen to her. So I'm glad everyone else is going to get a chance to listen to today. Yes, absolutely. Paula Mitchell is delighted that her job as a teacher on special assignment for maker-centered learning at Grass Valley Elementary School right here in Oakland allows her to bring more hands-on, minds-on learning to the community she loves. As a part of this work, Paula developed her school's very first maker education slash project-based learning program and its very first makerspace, the Wonder Workshop. Paula has also participated in the Agency by Design Oakland Fellowship and is now excited to continue her journey with ABD Oakland as its fellowship director in the 2018-2019 school year. Paula's been at this for over 25 years. Uh, She has always sought to incorporate hands-on learning, foster equity, and provide access to high-quality STEAM, that's science, technology, engineering, art, math programs, to historically underserved, underrepresented populations with a focus on culturally responsive making and authentic inclusion for students with disabilities. Yep. Uh, and to uh, to long ter- long time listeners, you know that we start every one of our pod- podcasts in the same way by asking folks to talk about um, their Oakland origin story, and that often leads into reflections on their own early education. Paula is no different, and uh, I think is contributing to the tapestry that the the GR project is trying to to help the community weave by sharing some some really uh, in, enthralling recollections and observations. Um, about her experience and about being good at school and who was teaching her and who wasn't teaching her. Um, in that she's worked at Oakland Public Schools 
Um, she shares uh, quite a bit about her time as a teacher at Thurgood Marshall um, before uh, going through the, the Marshall School closure um, and, and transferring uh, over to Grass Valley. Um, Paula also stated that she was clear on the need for students to experience teachers who reflect and represent their, uh, their own home culture, something we've heard other guests comment on as well. Uh, it was, as usual, a, a rich conversation that Randy and I were very lucky and privileged to get to, to have with Paula. Um, we hope you enjoy uh, both the questions we ask and, of course, Paula's responses as you get to know Paula Mitchell. Here she is. Thanks so much, Paula, for joining us here this morning. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you. Um, as usual, we want to know about how you came to the town. Can you tell us your Oakland origin story? Ooh, my Oakland origin story, it goes way back. Um, actually, as a child, we used to come here, my uh, dad and uh, one of my sisters and I, we'd come and visit because my dad originally uh, lived in Pittsburgh for several years. The family came from Mississippi, like a lot of African-American families during the Great Migration. And one of the places they landed was in Pittsburgh, California. So we had a bunch of relatives who stayed, and um, aunts and uncles and cousins, and we would come and visit them. And I also had a half-sister who grew up in Berkeley and Oakland, and we'd visit her as well um, when I was a kid. So the Bay always felt really comfortable to me, and when it was time to go to college, I wanted to get out of town. I'm from Seattle originally, and I looked naturally to the Bay Area because it wasn't that far, but it was far enough away that I was away from home, and I ended up going to Berkeley um, for my undergraduate, and so that's how I got to the Bay Area, and then after that, I, uh, I loved Oakland so much. I came here. Um, I didn't really come too much when I was at Cal, but one class I had, it was a geography class, and we, we got to go all over the Bay Area and look at places, and one of the places we came to was Lake Merritt. And I said, this is where I want to live. I want to live right here by the lake. And, uh, and so shortly after graduating, I did. I found an apartment by the lake and have been here ever since, and that's been over 20 years ago. What were you, what were you studying at Cal? Geography. I actually was a geography major. I got my degree in geography with an emphasis on environmental resources, environmental sciences. And so then how, how did you get to education? Ah, uh, another Cal connection. Um, I went a little longer than the traditional four years like a lot of people do uh, because I switched majors partway through. And I had some space in my last semester, and I wanted to fill it up with something. I, I felt like I wanted to give back in some way. And there was a program at Cal that placed people with nonprofits, and one of them was um, educational, like it was tied to OUSD, and it placed uh, Cal students in schools in OUSD as tutors. And I got I thought, oh, that's really cool. I like, I kind of like kids, and and I definitely have a lot of experience with school. Never thought I was going to be a teacher, but I'm like, you know, I know how to do school, so why not? 
uh, they ended up placing me in two West Oakland schools, Lafayette and Martin Luther King. And I was just, I was really inspired by the teachers there. I worked with two teachers at Lafayette and one at Martin Luther King. And what I saw them doing in the classroom, just, I was like, how do you have the patience? And you, you're just so caring and making such a difference with these kids. It just really inspired me. Uh, and then when I finished and I got my degree, I hadn't decided yet what I wanted to do. I thought I might go into city planning, so go back to grad school and do that. Uh, but in the meantime, I needed something to do while I kind of figured it out because I didn't want to spend more money when I didn't know <laughs> what I was doing. And Martin Luther King ended up having a tutoring position. So I took the tutoring position and just kept getting pulled deeper and deeper into <laughs> education. And, and from there, the principal at Martin Luther King at the time said, oh, you got a degree, you should be a sub. You could make a lot more money being a sub than tutoring. And I was like, uh, okay. <laughs> I was like, the money won out. I was like, I need to make money. And there was a big recession at the time that I graduated. So have, making money was like really key. Otherwise, I couldn't stay here. So became a sub, subbed all over Oakland. So got a sense of what all the schools were like. Um, I did elementary and middle. I never did high school. Is I that was like that's a little too much for me, um, but from there I I was offered a couple of different teaching jobs, but I wasn't in a teaching program. Like I had no, never had any intention of becoming a teacher ever. So I wasn't even thinking about going back to school for teaching. But I kept getting offered jobs, and I finally decided to do a take a stip sub position at Parker, and. Then I got offered a job there, and I decided, you know, I think I could actually do this. I, I, I think I'll try. But I still wasn't in a teaching program, so I couldn't stay. Finally got into a teaching program, got a job. It was at Garfield Elementary. Um, and this is way back in the day when there were still year-round schools. Mm -hmm. So uh, went to Garfield, taught there for a short amount of time. Uh, and at that time, there were the schools were bursting at the seams, and there were also lots of teachers. So usually, first-year teachers got got uh, what is it, non-reelect? You know, you just you just got let go as a matter of course. And so I was like, okay, uh, hmm, now what am I gonna do? Like, should I keep teaching? Should I go on to do something else? And then I decided, you know what? I think I really want to really give make this my career. And so I bugged the human resources person and said, I know there's a job somewhere, you know, put, put me in a job, give, give me a job. And I ended up at Thurgood Marshall Elementary. And that was my home school for, oh, about 16 years until it was closed. Mm -hmm. And then moved to Grass Valley. So that's a whole lot of information about my, <laughs> how I came to be a teacher. No, and that's that's exactly the the context that we were we were looking for. So thanks thanks for sharing that. I'm I'm curious, is there um, in in all of your adventures um, substituting and and teaching, or is there is there a story or two that that immediately leaps to mind that kind of crystallizes um, 
the whole experience or felt like it was the moment that when you were you became one of the converted oh gosh that's a really good question um i i don't know that there's a story that converted at a moment that converted me there was the moment where i seriously questioned my sanity and what i was like why am i doing this <laughs> when i was in a, like one of the first times i subbed in a classroom uh the kids they just i had i had no classroom management skills whatsoever uh so i'm so generally really really laid back and easygoing so telling pe other people what to do was really hard at first so these kids just ran over me and everything that could go wrong did go wrong in this classroom they broke the phone. They, they had a fish tank in their classroom. They broke the fish tank. Like I had people in and out of the room all day long because there was just disaster after disaster. And I was like, oh my God, I've, I could not ever come back to any school ever in Oakland. It was so awful. That's how I felt. I, I just had this sense of uh, it was the worst day Ever and that like my name was going to get written on this blacklist. <laughs> Never call this sub again. And I got a call the next day for another job. <laughs> so I was like, okay, um, maybe it's not as bad as I think it is, and maybe I could keep going and try again. So, not exactly answering your question as to a, a perfect moment that got me going, but <laughs> that made me keep going. Well, I definitely want to ask you about how you know your time particularly at Thurgood Marshall because that's a long time there and then we have a lot of questions about your time at Grass Valley but going way back even back to Seattle because we I wasn't I was not aware at all that you spent time there what was that's where you went to high school and middle yeah, school yeah that's where and, I grew up I'm born and so raised so what what was your own schooling like when you were in Seattle oh it was I think pretty traditional typical um if I go way, way, way back, actually, my first schooling was a Montessori school. My mom put me in Montessori, my, my sister and I in Montessori, when we were really little, like maybe three or four. And from there, we went to public school. And I just remember going from Montessori to public school and being pretty bored, um, I I think I'd already learned. Like I could read, I knew how to add and subtract, and this was in kindergarten, and so I it wasn't very stimulating. Um, and then in first grade, I. I like I I knew all the things. Like the teacher put me in a group by myself. <laughs> it was a group of one, and gave me those. This is how long ago it was, um, or how old the materials that they had were. I got those Dick and Jane books. I had a stack of Dick and Jane books, and I just read the Dick and Jane books. That's what my group was to do that. So. Um, I don't remember interacting a lot with the other kids uh, in first grade. And then uh, my parents moved out to the suburbs, so right outside the Seattle city limits. Um, at that time, it was still considered Seattle. 
uh, now it's its own town called Shoreline. And there, uh, the, I had a much better education. I, I enjoyed it a lot more. Uh, it was, like I said, pretty traditional for the time. Um, Seattle then was not as diverse as it is now, and especially North Seattle, where I spent most of my childhood. So I uh, mostly um, white kids and Asian kids. There were very few African American kids. And I say that because that really affected me uh, in my growing up and who I am now and what matters to me. Uh, I had pretty much all white teachers the entire time I was growing up, even when we were in Seattle in my younger years, except for maybe at Montessori. Um, but I definitely... You had, you had teachers of color at the mon at the preschool? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I'm trying to remember. I think I had... There was a few teachers of color at my high school. Um, and did... I mean, so at, when you moved... And you then you were in el the rest of elementary school, and middle school, and high school. Yes. Just out now, what is outside Seattle? Yes. And what did you like school? What, what stood out for you from your from that part of your formal education? I liked it. Uh, I I was really good at school. I could do school. Like I figured out what the teachers wanted and did that. gave gave that. I was always really good at. Um, just being academic. And I also made a lot of friends. I had a lot of friends in school. So I really enjoyed my, my schooling, actually, in uh, Shoreline. And was really active. I did a lot of activities when I was in elementary school. I like did a whole bunch of sports. and and What, what was your sport? What was your big sport? <laughs> my big sport? I don't know if there was one big sport. I liked to do everything. So it would probably basketball. Yeah. And I grew really fast in elementary school, so I was one of the taller kids. I'm not tall <laughs> at all, but I had my growth spurt really early, <laughs> like fifth grade, fourth grade. So I was taller than everybody else, so I could I could do basketball. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and I, I got involved in all kinds of activities. I, I Through middle and high school, I got into student government, and I was one of those band geeks, and I uh, t did. I was on the flag team, so... I had actually a really great, I feel like I had a really great education. Like, so when I came to Cal to go to college, I, uh, it wasn't that big of a stretch. So in that regards, it academically, it was, it prepared me very well to be, to go on to be an academic in a very traditional sense. Right, all right. Can you, can you say a little bit more, Paula, about, um, how your schooling experience as as one of the few African American children impacted your your view of the world today and 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 the work that you do today? I, I heard that correctly, right? That you said that that experience. Yes. Uh, yeah. Can you? Do, uh, I would yes, love for absolutely. you to expand on that. So one of the things that I think is extremely important is for students and. I think any, actually any child, but particularly students of color, is to have teachers who reflect their culture. I think that it's very validating, and you know, usually there's a greater sense of connection 
I think. Not always, because even though you might be of the same culture, race, you don't have, always have the same experiences. But in general, there there is a feeling of affinity. And I also think that for it's good for people of other cultures to be to have the exposure to teachers and people who don't look like them, who don't come from the same culture as them. Uh, I didn't have that experience very much, and I really, I felt like something was missing, but I couldn't articulate it as a kid. Uh, it took a long time for me to figure out what I felt was missing and why it was so important. Like There was a lot of coming to grips with my own cultural identity and uh, how it was affected by where I grew up and the people who were around me and the education I received. Because it was very, very much rooted in, um, in the European, um, more patriarchal society. You know, this, these are all our heroes. They're all white men, old white men, it seemed like. Um, learning about black history was, it started with slavery and went to the civil rights movement. Uh, Native Americans or indigenous people were Indians. And, you know, just like, like what people think of as like stereotypical now, but it was, that was how I was taught. So all of those things informed how I approach teaching. I deeply believe that children need to see people who look like them. And, and that starting from a place of let's say pride, but respect, honor, um, is also really important. And having something as simple as the images that are on the walls in the classroom uh, help to set the tone for that respect. Because growing up, it was just all white everything. And so in my classroom, I made sure that I found pictures that represented the kids that I taught. Um, and when I first started teaching, there were not that many. Like you couldn't just go to Lakeshore. Um, those people who are elementary teachers will know what I'm talking about. You know, Lakeshore Learning Supply. You couldn't just go there and find lots of multicultural things. There was a little bit, but I would just cut things out of magazines or I'd go, I'd just find a poster somewhere totally unrelated to education, but that fit and I would, mm -hmm. I would buy that and put it up in the classroom. Or I remember getting, so when you're in elementary school, you, and I taught mostly lower grades, so kindergarten through third, uh, especially K-1 and even second grade, you teach the calendar, you have to teach the months and the days and all of that. So we have this calendar and it's got a header, and it's a commercially made header that has the month on it. And there's all there's always, oftentimes kids on there. Sometimes animals. I would try to stick with the animals, but sometimes I got ones with kids, and the kids were always white. So I would color them in. I colored them in with colored pencils or markers um, to make them brown. So, like, 
all of those kinds of things that, that seem almost kind of silly, but I just realized how much it affected me. And so I wanted to make sure that the kids I taught, because I've always taught kids of color. I've only taught in Oakland. Uh, and I wanted to make sure that they saw, they had images that reflected them. <laughs> and then as far as content went, I went, I tried to go further and deeper than, than definitely starting with black history with slavery. You know, I would go back to Africa and talk about the different kingdoms. And I did this even with the little kids, like just, you know, as much as they could understand and handle, but I thought that was really important. And, and then to talk about how that's where we came from. And then we moved, we then moving to how it turned into slavery here in the United States. And, uh, and then more recently, because I was teaching third grade, a little bit older, went into, moved into the civil rights movement and taking a more, we learned about some of the big heroes, but also looking at smaller acts of courage and what does it mean, uh, is what's justice and, and things like, is it okay not to obey the rules if they're unjust? What is unjust? things like that, um, a more critical stance that that I was never exposed to in school, especially not in third grade. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. there's no way. It was just, it was very much compliance-oriented. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. I, I think it is, and again, thank you for sharing that. Um, I think it is unsurprising and fascinating to hear so many of, of our guests share how share their responses to their education and and what happened during their education that was that was formative or pushed them in one direction or, or another and it's again not surprisingly but fascinatingly often or always in terms of identity um, so I'm curious um, uh, because you you mentioned the the formation of your own identity, was there was there a particular teacher or adult or a peer in your life as as you were starting to be more conscious of your own identity and forming your own, own identity who helped you to do so in in this larger context of the education you were experiencing? Mm. Another good question, making me go back. I have to say that my father was actually always very pro-black and very vocal. But you know how you don't always pay attention to your parents? <laughs> it's like, eh, yeah, okay, dad, uh-huh, uh-huh. And mm -hmm. it's like your peers, the people around you who, who are more important. But I realize that there's always been that thread throughout my childhood, all the even now, even till today, he's very much that way. He's very much about you got you know got to help each other out, and you should be proud to be black. And I was always proud to be black, and and he would always say things like that. So I think in the back of my mind, I had that there, and I had uh, my family as role models. They, uh, a lot of the people on my dad's side of the family are in education, actually. <laughs> And we're just very, very 
they're very influential. My grandmother was also very influential, um, and just she was. This is your your dad's mother? my dad's mother? Yeah, and just uh, it's kind of hard to explain, but just being a really good person, and kind of just being who you are, and loving yourself. She kind of just exemplified that, and so that was that was something I could draw upon. Um, so family, and then I think some of the some experiences that were really important for me were was when I got to Cal. Uh, one of my cousins was there; he was a year older than me, um, came from Seattle, and he he kind of showed me around a little bit and introduced me to some professors you know you should take this person's class and you should take that person's class and so that got me into more of the african-american studies and even though that wasn't my major i did take some classes in that area and it definitely awakened my consciousness a lot more and then i did a lot of more reading on my own uh what did you what did you teach at thurgood marshall or what maybe after 16 years what did you not teach or who did you not teach maybe <laughs> it's like who did I not teach hmm yeah I taught everything I think fourth grade that's the only grade I did not teach did you have a, a favorite I loved first grade and then I had a principal who who really urged me to expand and and go up a little bit and it and it was a huge jump, but I went to second grade. <laughs> and that turned into my favorite grade. <laughs> it was fantastic. Do you have a, what stood, stands out from some of your favorite units or times of the year with your second graders or projects? Mm. I really like probably midway through the year because in the beginning they're really just first graders who are still a lot of times learning alphabet and words and things but by the middle of second grade everything starts to gel and they really start reading and they get really excited I mean they're always excited that's why I like second grade but they get really excited about reading and uh, expanding on what they're learning and they start asking more questions and it's, it's they start to grow up and they're less babies and more questing little human beings so that kind of that mid-year range when everything starts to gel I really love that time so not any particular unit but just how everything comes together and then we really just go out from there we just zoom and the learning, I always felt like around January, February, the learning just takes off you know, like exponentially. And when Thurgood Marshall, was that closed at this, under Superintendent Tony Smith? Was that one of those, kind of those four or five schools that closed around that time or went, I don't recall. Yeah, so it was about what, six, seven years ago. Okay. Yeah. And you were there that year. Oh, I mean, yes. Yeah. I mean, can you can you remember? Like, what? I'm so curious to know. I've never heard anything about, you know, what what did families think about that? When did you get the information? I'm sure rumors were flying all over the place. How did the ki kids handle it? Like, all that kind of stuff. What was it like? Oh, my gosh. It was, it was terrible. Yeah. 
Um, so, yeah, I think it was maybe seven years ago now. Um, we, so our staff, it's a small school. It was a small school. Our staff was really close. Uh, we were really like family, and I still teach with um, a core group of them at Grass Valley. But we had been together through some real ups and downs, and we had just come out of having a principal that was, it was really very contentious and difficult, and we'd gotten a new principal. Um, the district placed this new principal with us. And so we thought, okay, we met her. We're like, okay, I think we, this is, this is gonna be good. Like now we're, we're gonna really turn our school around and go back up to where we were. Because we'd had several years with a principal that was fantastic and we'd just been climbing and climbing and, and doing really, trying to do really great things academically with the kids and um, culturally and just the environment of the school was really good. And then we had a principal that was much more difficult. And so everybody was feeling really hopeful once that principal was gone and we had a new principal. And about maybe a month or two months into the school year, we got the notice that we were being considered for closure. And everybody was devastated. It was like, what? We, we're just like now feeling hopeful again that we can really get our school back on track in the way we know it is is supposed to be. And um, so then we had to gear up for a fight. So we went to school board meetings and we rallied our community, our school community that showed up in force at the school board meetings. And we had their district people came out to the school to explain the reasons for closures. And it was months and months of meetings and putting proposals together and, and just fighting. And it was, it was really, really, really rough because our morale had just gotten better as a staff and then it was like, it, it just, it really, it made the whole school year, like everything that happened was, was very poignant because it was like, especially after all the fighting, it was months and months of fighting, going round and round and round, trying to not to get taken off the list that, uh, they announced that they were going to close the school, and uh, we have a large we had a large special ed population at Thurgood Marshall, and some of those families had had their kids at Tilden, and you have to be in a district for quite a while to remember Tilden was where uh, the program for exceptional children was, and m most of special ed students, um, especially I think pre K K first second maybe went and so that campus had been closed and and they had those kids had been moved so those parents had already experienced that we had also had staff members who had taught at schools that had gotten closed before this round of closures so it was very traumatic very very traumatic because um, most of our staff had been in our school for at least five years minimum of five years um, most of us had been there 10 to 20 years. So it was really our home. And we loved the kids, we loved the location. Um, 
we were the community was really invested in the school and it was just really sad we did a lot of this is the last time we're gonna we're gonna this is the last time we're gonna do that um, we had actually a closing ceremony like a closing party where we put it out to all the faculty and uh, and students who had gone to Thurgood Marshall and it was a big celebration that we had and, and people came through and just got to go through the classrooms and to the play yard and uh, and I made a video with my kids um, about their favorite places about Thurgood Marshall and gave it to them at the end of the year so they could remember so it was it was really tough and it still hurts it, it lingers like mm -hmm. and it talked to you know because we were fortunate enough for most of us to actually for our entire staff at that time to be able to move to Grass Valley because the majority of our students were going to go to Grass Valley and there's a contract language that allows teachers to follow their students as long as there's space and because of things that were going on at Grass Valley at the time, most of that staff left, so we were able to go together. Um, and the people that I was at Thurgood Marshall with, who are now at Grass Valley, we still have that same, just that, that kind of gut-wrenching, heart-rending feeling of being taken from our home. Even though we have a new home now, and, it's, and we're really happy there. It's, you talk about Thurgood Marshall, and it's, it still, it hurts a lot. Um, thank you for sharing all of that. I, I want, wanted to ask you about that because, um, I mean, obviously we all know Oakland, again, is sitting in a place where we are considering and the board is being asked to consider what I would describe as pretty massive cuts. And they're talking about... Um, consolidations and mm -hmm. and they're using the word closure mm -hmm. and also and mergers and also maybe I think they're also talking about some strategic expansions of certain programs or schools mm -hmm. um, but yeah just is were there any does anything come back that was there ever a moment when the faculty or even just yourself just speaking for yourself could that like it was the right as hard as it was it can you was it the right thing to do? Could it have still been the right thing to do? Or is it just, it was wrong, you know, I'd, it was it was not right. It should, it's a wrong that needs to be fixed. I guess I'm one, do you have any thoughts on that? I don't know if that was articulate very well, but. I, I, I think I understand what you're asking. Okay. Yeah, I think that from a facilities management point of view, we understand, we understood. We understand um, that it's expensive to have small schools and that given budget, just the district is always in some sort of budget crisis. We know this, um, those of us who've been in Oakland for a long time and that we've made sacrifices over and over again in many ways. And closing schools is one of the biggest sacrifices that can happen. So we understand from that perspective why they needed to make those choices. Uh, however, just the way it was done, 
we felt like, to put it bluntly, it was like a dog and pony show. That they play, had all these meetings with the community and board meetings and all of that when it was a done deal from the beginning. Okay, so it was framed early on as the 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 final outcome was yet to be determined. Right. Okay. Okay. Because I I believe I there might have been one school that got taken off that list and I'm not 100% sure, but every other school was closed and and they all showed up at those meetings. All the families, all the community, all the parents and uh, and teachers to argue for their school staying open. And they all had excellent, compelling reasons. And none of them remained open. So I think I think a part of Greg's question also was having gone through that experience and sitting where you sit now and having so much history here in Oakland and being able to appreciate all of that. Would Do you consider school closure a reasonable tool in the toolbox or a reasonable part of a solution to the financial pressures that Oakland's facing? Or no, would you counsel folks to say, I, I just don't think this is an appropriate part of any solution to fiscal challenges? That's a really hard question because Oakland's in a very different place than it was then for a number of reasons. One, we have fewer children spread amongst many more schools because charter schools have come along and there's so many more charters than there were and, but at the same time, there's a growing tax base in Oakland. There's so much more, like new tech companies coming in and lots, lots more residents, maybe don't have kids, but the tax base is growing. So, I think that looking at priorities is really important and how we could use the revenue that's coming in that should be growing, actually, not shrinking, um, more strategically. Mm -hmm. So I think that small schools are actually the best. The, the district talks about you know, maximizing what it can do for students, but doing it at, a, at schools that are bigger. And I think that if they're really true to the, to what the vision is for the district, that there's lots of re research that shows that smaller schools, smaller communities actually have more impact, greater impact in a more positive way and s with students. I mean, there was a whole, one, also one of the reasons we have so many small schools is because there was this whole initiative uh, in the 90s to create small schools in Oakland. And there were schools that were all traditionally small anyway, like Thurgood Marshall was and Grass Valley. And it's like 
sending two different messages. It's like small schools work, but no, you've got to be, you can't be too small. Uh, that's tough to kind of swallow. So I think that, I think if a school is working, it should not be closed. I think that we should really find other ways to trim spending. I mean, there's so much going on in this district. Uh, you know, I've been here for, I've been in this district for 25 years and there's always something going on. It's, it's a really tough place to be um, in terms of finances because like I said, stuff, there's, I don't think there's been a year that I've been in this district that something has not happened around finances. So, like, their fiscal management is, really needs, like, oversight needs to take place, and it shouldn't be done on the backs of teachers and schools and students. There's got to be another way. So... You say that Grass Valley, let's, let's start talking a little bit more about Grass Valley. Mm -hmm. That's where you are now. Yes. So d tell how many students are at Grass Valley, and tell us a little bit about Grass Valley. Okay. Um, there's about, it's the beginning of a new school year, so it's, I think there's about 280, 290 students. Okay, so it's small. And it's, for people who don't know, Grass Valley is located in the Grass Valley neighborhood of Oakland, not <laughs> somewhere out by Sacramento or wherever that other Grass Valley is. A lot of people don't know. They're just like, you, Grass Valley? What? It's like one of those little hidden gems, I call it. That's, it's a hidden gem in Oakland. It's up in the hills. It's above the Oakland Zoo. And it's right below Skyline, like where Skyline ends, uh, near the Chabot Regional Park. And that area had traditionally been full of middle class, upper middle class African American families. And that's who went to the school. And as we know, Oakland has been changing a lot over the last five to 10 years. And that area, and a lot of those families moved, the parents got older, retired, um, their children grew up moved uh, to other parts of Oakland or out of Oakland altogether because they couldn't afford it, um, especially more recently. The parents, the, the original owners of the homes died and the community is now rapidly gentrifying as well in its own way. And um, the, the whole feel of community is changing. So most of our kids no longer come from the Grass Valley community area. They actually come from parts of East Oakland, um, usually between, generally between like 73rd and 106, you know, to San Leandro border, mm -hmm. and from the flatlands. And then we have a large special education population, about 25% of our students are in special ed, so they're bused from all over the city. And for most of the families who send their, their kids to Grass Valley, they see it as a good alternative to their, the school that's actually in their neighborhood. And some of them, I call them legacy kids, 
the parents went to Grass Valley themselves. And so they're bringing their kids back to the school that they went to. So about 280 kids, it's a new mm -hmm. school year, so things are kind of settling. But as you walk around the campus, mm -hmm. just in terms of this going, just to connect the two conversations back to, to the idea of school closures and how mm -hmm. big's too big, are there a bunch of empty classrooms? Are there a bunch of, you know, are, what's, is the facility fully used even at 280 students? Yes, it is. Um, it's really interesting. We heard about what the district considers full utilization and it's 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 different than what we think of as full utilization because their idea is that every classroom has a class in it like a with a teacher and a classroom full of kids and they do not include special education in that formulation which did not make any sense to me at all this is what one of our special education teachers told me because she was very into, she was one of our union reps and she was very into finding out like what's the criteria and everything. And we're not sure why that is, um, but it, 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 yeah, it didn't make sense to me either, but I, maybe it's because they feel like they can put those, those classrooms in any school, I'm so not sure. How many, well, yeah, I've, I have no idea. Uh, how many classrooms at Grass Valley? Do you like these are special day classes yes. where all the students are qualifying for special yes. education? Okay, and does Grass Valley have one or we have six, five? Five of those classrooms. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And so what you're saying is, it's like th those class those five classrooms are clearly being used by right. kids every day. Right. And the, but the district somehow is saying your best information right now is that the district is saying no, those classrooms are. We consider them under not used, yeah, or or maybe underutilized. Um, and I'm not I'm not sure why exactly. Yeah. Well, my only thought is that perhaps it's because that's a, a a program, you know, PEC program for exceptional children that could be put in another location. Huh. Um, the other thing that they do is they don't think about uh, the resource teacher who can go into classrooms and also pulls out. So the resource teacher has a portable. Uh, we have a PE portable, so that because because we have a PE teacher, um, the PE teacher can teach on the yard. But when it's raining, which we know it does, can go into the PE portable and teach in the PE portable. Um, we also have an art teacher who has her own room, and that's considered not used that you know or underutilized. Um, Fortunate enough, we have a maker space, which is where I work, and that is not considered, you you know, used okay. as a so so, so, so a teacher, a family member walking the campus is going to see busy and activity in every nook and cranny. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That's and that's what I thought. I just yeah. But but you but the messages from on high might be, well, no, this this is not. There's not 32 children. In every single, single. four-walled space, exactly. In okay, exactly. So, with all this talk, what do you ha are you already getting messages? Is Grass Valley being considered? Do you have any information, or is, as OUSD goes down this path? From what we've heard so far, we were really concerned last year, which is why we had the one teacher who was really looked like really dug into it. Um, we're not on any list right now. 
and we were there was rumors that maybe we were last year um we were also told that our campus could become a shared campus with uh, our some of our rooms are being offered to charter schools to i guess lease the space um but no one took them up on the offer which makes sense to me because if you look at our campus it doesn't make sense to have we don't have a big campus um, or we don't have a lot of rooms uh, and our facilities aren't such that we could accommodate another school so right now it seems like we're okay as of this moment and if uh, if some other school what if some if some other school was impacted um, and you got the message that you know OUSD would like Grass Valley to welcome 25 more or 50 more children across K five. Do you think there's is there room in your in your classrooms for those classrooms to have a, each have more children? Oh gosh! Like could you be on the <laughs> other end of this conversation? The other yeah. Um, if that were the case, we would probably have to utilize some of our so the our after school has a portable after school program does so we'd probably have to give that up for a classroom the resource teacher would probably have to give up the portable for so, so, so the, cl the classrooms that are currently being used with students are already pretty full those yeah they're yeah. we're at i mean it's really encouraging actually it's very exciting that we have we totally have people on the waiting list to get in our school like our our fourth grade is at 31 it's at max our fifth grade is actually a four or five combination is at 30 i think our kindergartens are 27 or something like that um we're really we're we're high so so <laughs> all right so then tell us what are those that that leads me to believe there's some awesome work going on with the faculty and students and the leadership at grass valley so what's making grass valley a special place these days that families are attracted to it and and you've got a wait list what's going on well, I think there's several things that are happening. One of the big things I think that's attracting people now is that we have a maker program, which is what I do. Uh, we started that, this will be its fourth year, and we started as a pilot program under a former principal, Brandy Stewart, who we had this conversation one day where we were talking about how we just thought we could do more and engage kids more with in school and and she was talking about blended learning and I was talking about hands-on learning and we got really excited in that conversation and just decided to like let's try it let's see if we can get some teachers on board to just test this out so we we did a pilot uh, program which would be four years ago now and found it it was really exciting the kids learned so much more deeper with the the model that we tried uh, that we decided to go build it out and and go and add more teachers and i think slowly word has gotten out around the district that there's this exciting program that allows kids to do project-based learning hands-on learning and they get their content um that way and that there's a maker space and there's all these 
programs that are happening at Grass Valley. And um, I think one of the things that helped with that is that we, we had uh, one of our, so every maker unit that we do, we have an expo at the end of it. And last year, we did a self as superhero unit and we had what we called a Comic-Con was our expo. And one of the district um, camera people came and did a video. And that video, I guess, has been played over and over and over and over uh, on, uh, I think, a KDOL and, and maybe on the district's page or something. So like that little bit of media <clears throat> got us more attention and it played up our program that, because a lot of people don't even know Grass Valley exists, but when they do and they start looking at us, they're like, whoa, all this stuff is happening there. So we've got our maker program, which is really unique in Oakland, in an Oakland public school, that not is, it's not just a maker space, but we started it as something that teachers were doing in their classrooms. And we, we create the content, we collaborate to create the curriculum that's, that the kids learn. And that, and we also take into account what student interests are. So it's it's pretty a, a pretty unique program that I haven't seen in I don't think I've seen it in any public elementary in Oakland. And then on top of that, we have lots of enrichment programs. We have art. We, you know, we have an art teacher. We have PE. We have music. Um, we have dance program. Um, that we have Luna dance. Uh, we have a grant to bring them into our school. And then we have fantastic teachers who are really dedicated. They they are always learning. They're open to trying new things if it's gonna help positively impact the students. So they do a lot of small group instruction uh, in English language arts and in math. So more mini lessons and workshop models and, uh, and really differentiate in that way. So there's a lot of things happening at the same time that once families come and visit the school, they're really impressed by all the things that they see happening. And we have a phenomenal library, which a lot of Oakland schools unfortunately don't have. They don't have a librarian or a, a functioning library, or what they do have is very small. And we have, we're, we're working on keeping our librarian right now, it's, and it's still a work in progress. But, but the woman that, who's been there has done an excellent job in getting books that the kids really wanna read, but that are really high quality books too. So it's like a, a combination of things that, it, that are happening that we've worked to create a really great full service school. Awesome, and really I wanna dive in um, into the, the makerspace in, in just a moment, but I, I feel compelled to mention that whatever um, or as large as the bump the school experience from the video may have been, the, the GR project bump is, it's gonna be through the roof. So, so <laughs> you'll, sure. you'll wanna, you'll wanna prepare Apolog staff. Yeah, apologies for, ahead of time to the front of staff at yeah, Grass Valley, I mean, all those GR project <laughs> listeners. Because we have just the billions are going to swarm. It, it, it's it's, it's going to get okay, hectic. Okay, I'm going to get so prepared. Just, I'll let them know. I just need to, to I feel a responsibility <laughs> to, to, to mention that so you can prepare. So so the say more about the, the, the makerspace. So what for those who may not know, first of all, what what is the pedagogy or the terms or, or term that, that you use 
that is the foundation? Is it is it maker education? You mentioned project-based learning. Is it a combination? Mm -hmm. lay, lay the groundwork so folks have a clear understanding of what's then informing what happens in the space, which would, which would be the follow-on question. Okay. Okay. Um, so that's a great question because that's a question we had too. Mm -hmm. We created this from scratch and, and we were really trying to figure out what worked best. So our first year, as I mentioned, we started with blended learning and maker education. And when we looked at blended learning, we went around to different schools that were actually doing it um, using uh, playlists, to personalize learning for students. Um, I think it's the Summit Schools, is that correct? Yeah, we went to some of those. Um, and we actually started creating our own playlists using different software and free, free things that we, because we had zero budget. We, we just, this was an idea and we decided to go with it and we had no funding except for whatever the district normally gives us. And that was you know, basically for textbooks and materials. So we had to figure out anything free we could use. So we, we created playlists for kids. And then, and so our, our blended learning was on the computers, um, our Chromebooks that we had access to. And the kids did playlists that the teachers created in both language arts and math and also some online learning programs like Raz Kids and Khan Academy. So you did things like that for the blended learning part. And then for the maker education, we tried out, we just thought of some ideas. <laughs> we just said, what do we wanna teach? <laughs> and how we could get the content standards in there. So what we decided was we were going to do, we were gonna do a language arts, focused unit, we were going to do a science focused unit and a math focused unit our first year. So we decided three big units for the year and that's kind of still continued to be our model. And we decided, I think our first one was games. So the kids created board games and that was our language art. So they had to do, they had to come up with the rules and steps, so it's like uh, following directions kind of thing. And then we did a science unit that was based on um, habitats and adaptations. So it was a biology one. And they created a creature, and they had to create a creature that could live in a specific habitat that already existed on Earth. And they had to explain why their creature, why they chose that creature, and why its adaptations made it suitable for the habitat. And then the last one we did was math-based, and it was Create Your Ideal Oakland, so it also had like some social studies components too, where, but they had to do like some city planning and, um, and using measurements and create buildings and things like that. So from there, we realized we need a better structure because <laughs> we, were, we were trying to create everything from scratch and got a grant to do uh, professional development for teachers, and we decided we wanted to go into to learn more about PBL, which is project-based learning. So we took workshops on PBL and decided that the PBL structure, the project-based learning structure, we were gonna use that, but with a more maker twist. So project-based learning, you have, you start with a driving question, and um, a lot of it is group work-based, which we really wanted to do, and, um, 
and you have a we you come up with a, a plan and you put your content and standards in it and so basically it gave us a structure a framework to work off of and then what we decided was that we were going to make sure that every unit had a maker component where the kids had to figure something out and create something like they could create a physical something or a, a video or something and, and just to be clear, you're saying, you know, we were doing this and we were doing this. Is this you and 20 members of the Grass Valley faculty? Is this you and just your one best friend? What's the scope of of who's doing, who's leading the work? Is this just you and the principal? No. So the first year, it was, so I came out of the classroom. I should back up. Because, so my, our, my principal and I had this conversation. Um, so now I guess it would be about five years ago. And... Then it kind of sat there for a few months. And at the end of the school year, I heard her talking. We were at a leadership team meeting. And she was talking to another teacher, talking about how the district had provided money for a TSA, a teacher on special assignment position. And she and I said, oh, really? What are you going to use it for? Who's going to do it? And she said, well, I don't know yet. But I think I want to do, like we talked about, the blended learning and, and maker stuff. Uh, I think that would be great. The person, I want the person to lead that work. And I said, oh, really? Uh, exactly. I raised my hands like, I would be interested in doing that. She's really, okay, let's talk. And so we talked, and I became the TSA for blended learning and maker education at Grass Valley. And from there, I led the work with a team of four teachers who were on our pilot our very first year. But we just experimented. We just threw stuff against the walls just to see what would stick. And it was two special ed teachers and two general education teachers who did the work and did sorry Paula did did those teachers opt into this work or three of them opted in mm -hmm. and one had the option of opting in if she wanted to teach the grade that I was teaching so it was mm -hmm. I was coming out of uh, I think it was second grade I had a two three or something and it was I was gonna teach second grade the next year but then I moved into the TSA position and so there was a teacher who wanted to teach second grade and so my principal was like okay you can have Paula's position if you are willing to do this work with us and the teacher said okay <laughs> so and the other three were like yeah we'll give it a try sure got it so all that all everyone involved was open-minded and excited and yes and they're on their own terms yes yeah, yeah. Okay. and so they're like I always call them my early adopters mm -hmm. They were really willing to take risks. Um, they didn't, we didn't always know what we were doing, but everybody was willing to try. So it was this team of four people and myself leading it and just diving headlong into what is project-based learning? What is maker education? What is blended learning? Like I just spent every, I felt like every waking moment just immersing myself in all of this and learning like just like a sponge, soaking it all in because as a classroom teacher, I taught what I was supposed, like I was given, like the materials I was given, but I always supplemented with stuff, and I always felt like hands-on was the best. Like I always put in, even in the most scripted times when we had open court and, and we were supposed to do this many minutes at this time of a day, like I always tried to figure out a way to get some hands-on stuff in. So I was already passionate about it, um, but I felt like it, it was really getting squeezed out, so when this opportunity came along, I just like went 
full steam ahead with it and learned everything I could. And so that's when, so our first year was just that those four teachers and, uh, and me figuring it out together. Sorry again to, to jump in. I, I just would, would love for you to quickly speak to in that first year when you were f- figuring it out as you went, were there any specific supports that admin put in place or perhaps you put in place that uh, made the risk taking easier for I, your team? Yes, absolutely. The First of all, my principal's buy-in was critical. It was key to what made it successful, honestly, Mm -hmm. because she was visionary enough to recognize that the model of education that we had wasn't working and that there had to be something better. And she was willing to give us a space. She, She created a safe space for us to try different things. She said, don't worry about test scores. Don't worry about Um, being on the pacing guide, whatever the district says at this time. Don't worry about that. Do what you're doing. Try it out. It's okay to take these risks. And it's okay if your kids don't show up the way the other people's kids show up on the tests. The tests are not the the main thing. And that was huge. It took such pressure off. And it was still hard for the teachers to let go of that because, you know, our entire careers were like test Kids got to perform on the test. Kids got to perform on the test. You got to be here. You got to be here. You got to be here. It's like that is drilled into us. Mm-hmm. But her giving us that space to to really try things that were outside of the box and not have that pressure of yeah you better perform well on that test even though you're trying something brand new like, that that made all the difference for us. I was I was hoping that might be the story and and. Um, should folks have questions, perhaps, about trying to structure something similar in their own schools? Are, are you, is, is the doctor in? Could folks reach out to you here in, in Oakland if they had questions about how to establish similar circumstances or? or Absolutely. Connect, yeah, okay, I just wanted yes. to, to, to raise that Definitely. up. Definitely. Okay, that's what I thought. <laughs> I'm preaching the gospel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, yes. so I'm so sorry for all these interruptions. So you've taken us to the end of that first year. Keep, yes. keep going. So as I said, we realized that we needed a structure, a framework, that just kind of going about willy-nilly was not going to be sustainable long-term. And so I wrote a grant that gave us money to take professional development opportunities that were not offered by the school district. The school district does not have anything around maker-centered learning, maker education. they have, you know, the, like how to teach your language arts curriculum, how to teach your math, how to teach the science. It's basically curriculum based. Uh, so we know we knew we needed something else because we were trying something really different and trying to create something that worked for our students in particular. So we tried the PBL, the project based learning, um, through the Buck Institute of Education. Okay. So we took a workshop in the summer. We got the framework where we are driving question and uh, curriculum overview, like your, your, your unit plan. Or we, got, we got a lot of um, things that we could use to, to help structure it better. And then we also decided to go more into student voice and choice. Because the first year, we chose all the units and, and the direction to go into. And we decided to, to start asking kids a little bit more about what are you interested in? Um, how, what, what would you like to make? 
how can you, how do you think you can make it? And so we just branched out a little bit and the program branched out a little, we expanded. We added four more teachers to the cohort because we did see how much more engagement we got from students and, and that they were actually remembering what they were learning so much longer than in traditional teaching. So the principal decided, yes, we'll continue, we'll expand, and we added four more teachers. Again, two general ed and two special ed teachers. And this time, it was not opt-in. It was, we're expanding the program. And, we're, and we went second through fifth. And, and now you're going to be in the program. But we had also laid the groundwork for it the year before by sending these teachers to, um, to different professional development opportunities. <coughs> like uh, Agency by Design, went to some workshops with them, had them actually come to our school and do a little bit of work for the teachers. Went, uh, sent our teachers to the designing making experiences at Lighthouse um, where, um, where Aaron Vanderwiff was, um, the creativity lab. And doing those kinds of things in prep to lay the groundwork and having them do uh, school tours too, to look at schools that were doing this kind of thing to see what was possible. So we did that, the teachers were very receptive to it. Um, also, the teachers who'd been in the pilot program the year before were the best ambassadors because they were like, this is so exciting, this is so cool. You know, we're doing this and this is, this is what I'm seeing in my classroom, the kids are like, they're, they're really focused and they're on task and they're, and they're coming up with these things I never thought they could do. So they were super excited and got the other teachers excited to be a part of the program. And so we expanded that second year, learned a lot. It was really different from the first year because I had two cohorts of teachers and the other thing that, that my principal did to make it possible for us, for us to be successful was she actually gave us planning time during the school day. So we had PLCs during the day mm -hmm. where the classrooms, the kids were at different enrichment like art, PE, um, think library. And then I got to meet with the teachers and we did our planning that way. So that was also critical to our success. It didn't happen outside mm -hmm. uh, where people, teachers had to give up their own time. It was like, this is valuable, so I'm gonna make sure the time is given within the school day for it to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we planned again together, but using the, the PBL framework, project-based learning framework, and we, so I had cohort one and cohort two. Cohort one was my, my original set of teachers. Cohort two was the new teachers. Cohort one, we, we, we would push the envelope, we would try new things, and cohort two, I would more do the things that we had done the year before, but with more structure. And so we ended up, cohort one ended up coming up with a theme for the whole year. And by the end of the year, cohort two wanted to be a part of that. So they, they came on board with our theme, which was health and wellness. And so everything that we did that year in some way had to do with health and wellness. Mm -hmm. And we asked the kids more like, you know, what do you want to learn? What do you want to do? So we ended up, in the beginning, they learned about, it was, um, they started learning about uh, what food resources were available in their communities and food deserts and, 
and we looked at the whole of Oakland and why do some areas have more resources than others, and then we took it into their own hands to make. Um, we we connected with a community group that uh, woodworkers who helped us build planter boxes. We decided the kids wanted to build planter boxes, so they got to build their personal planter boxes to take kind of take control of their food resources. And then from there, we went into learning how to cook, and we connected with um, with uh, a local um, kitchen, uh, uh, cafe, and they had student chefs, and the student chef came in and taught kids how to prepare things, and we, from there, our last unit was uh, a farmer's market, where the kids, they had learned how to grow food, they learned how to prepare food, and then they actually sold, they marketed and sold the things that they learned how to make. Mm-hmm. So that was a whole year's right. arc. Is the, is is the is the maker education banner flying during this time or we're still we're working up to that the the maker education banner is is. is happening okay. now okay. yeah so we call it we so it went from blended learning maker education to we really moved our focus to project based learning slash maker education mm-hmm. then last year it, you know it's always changing we moved into from we still call it, the kids just call it makers. But our philosophy is kind of, and my personal philosophy has morphed from the PBL slash maker ed to maker-centered learning. Because I've done a lot more work with Agency by Design Oakland, and the mindset that we're really trying to get into kids is the idea that they um, can make change in their world through their own actions, and that they're capable, with, they can figure things out on their own. So there's all these mindsets that are that are changing, that are happening, and it doesn't just happen in the maker space. So what I want to make clear is that although we have a maker space at my school, and that's where the teachers meet and kids can come in and do some activities, the majority of making happens in the classrooms and it's led by the classroom teachers. So it's like empowering teachers to empower their students. You've mentioned Agency by Design Oakland a couple of times. You've mentioned Agency by Design Oakland a couple of times now, so let's take a moment and talk about that. So tell us who are they, what are they, uh, what, what, what's, what's going on there, and what, how have you come to know them and, and what kind of work are you doing with them and all that good stuff. So Agency by Design is comes out of the Harvard Graduate School of Education, their Project Zero, and it's a it's a research arm of Project Zero that looks at maker education and maker centered learning. And from what I know about them, they started oh I think this research about maybe six or seven years ago. And they have done research in different areas of the country. And one of the areas was Oakland and the Bay Area. And they were looking at sort of the commonalities of what was happening in classrooms where there was this kind of maker maker education happening. And they focused on some of the schools in Oakland, one of which was Oakland International High School and Park Day School and Lighthouse Community Charter School. Those are the three that I know of for sure. And 
they were looking to see what was happening in these schools and how students were thinking, what actions were taking place, and uh, like I said, what the commonalities were around them. And they came up with several different um, Let's say uh, capacities and um, a sort of a framework of of what made uh, maker-centered learning and how student agency happens in these contexts. And the people that I really know that were involved with the project are Brooke Tazlowski, who is at Oakland International High School, an art teacher there. Um, Aaron Vanderwiff, who was a director of the Creativity Lab at the time at Lighthouse Community Charter School, and Ilya Pratt, at, um, who is, does the maker program at Park Day School. And I became involved with the program two years ago and started uh, with their fellowship. So originally, I believe the researchers chose specific schools and teachers to work with. And then they expanded to a teacher fellowship that was literally looking at documentation and assessment of maker-centered learning. And that was the year that I joined. So that was in 2016-2017 school year. Yeah. And so it was still um, attached to the research. They were still trying to figure out, you know, how can we document what's happening? What's what are some good ways to assess? Because that's one of the big issues of maker education is how do we assess it because you can't just take a test it, you know there's all they're they're doing things so how do how does that look if they're how do we know that they're competent at the, that the kids are competent at what they're doing so we did a lot of work around that my first year with agency by design and I learned a lot about they have their own set of thinking routines they have um, these three capacities that that they they see um, students exhibiting or that they want to focus on. They're really about systems thinking and, um, and a whole mindset of, of like collaboration and co-inspiration and um, more diffuse knowledge, like you know, the teacher's not the center of all knowledge, but that it happens um, in, it can happen. The kids can be teachers, community members can be teachers, things like that. And then the thinking routines get at more of the systems thinking part of it. Um, like there's something called parts, purposes, and complexities where you look at, it could be an object or it could be a system. You look at it and you take it apart and you look at what are the parts of this object or system? What do you think the purpose is of those parts? And then what is, what is complex about it? What is tricky? Um, about the interaction between these things. So they have a set of things, uh, there's four other thinking routines that go along with those. Um, so it's all in service of maker-centered learning, which is not just the maker spaces and like having 3D printers and all the tech stuff, but it's more focused on um, what's happening in in the mind and the actions that students are taking and teachers are, are taking to foster um, making and what I call agentic action so that, that teachers and students feel that they can make change in their environment. And so 
my first year, like I said, was 2016-17. And then last year, um, I became a senior lead. So I helped um, lead some of the work, some of the, the fellowship. So, and also, let me backtrack a little bit. 17-18 was the last year, that it, the last research year, where it was directly connected with what the researchers um, at the Project Zero were doing. But people in Oakland felt like it was so needed and so worthwhile that they decided that they wanted to continue the fellowship uh, and call it Agency by Design Oakland. So it comes out of the same, it comes out of the Harvard Project Zero, but now it, it's its own entity, its own nonprofit, working with the teachers of Oakland to further maker-centered learning in Oakland. And so there are public schools, charter schools, and private school that are involved in the fellowship. And, uh, and it's now taking its on its own Oakland flavor because you know, Oakland is unique and is much more uh, interested in social justice and identity and culture and things like that. And so that has become much more infused into um, Agency by Design Oakland. And that's what we found last year because the, the cohort we, um, we did something new that we hadn't done the year before, which is have inquiry groups where the people in the groups um, decided what they wanted to learn more about and delve deeper into it and tried it out in their classrooms and then, and then brought it to the larger group and showcased. We had a big showcase at the end of the year about all the things that they learned. And so I was a senior lead and I uh, led an inquiry group around thinking routines and capacities, and there were other groups um, around maker identity, around um, leadership, um, strategies and practices, So, uh, but all focused on um, making maker-centered learning. And so this year, we are continuing the fellowship, 18-19 school year. We already were about to start. Our first meeting is September, and this year, I'm actually the fellowship director so I'll be leading the fellowship and helping guide this work. Yeah, on a, congrats. On a, thank you. <laughs> it's very exciting <laughs> uh, on a, a much broader level. So I think we have 32 teachers in the cohort this year. Um, and I, we're reaching, I believe it's 16 Oakland schools. Um, Arnie, go ahead. We're good. So 16 schools for this current school year, some 30-odd teachers, plus all the teachers who experienced it last year, the folks who experienced it the year before when it was more affiliated, or the few years before that, directly more affiliated with Project Zero. Do you have any sense of, like, overall, how many students, schools, and educators in the city of Oakland ABD has already impacted? Ooh, that's a really good question. Because not only have they, have they, uh, had the fellowships over several years, but they've also been holding workshops. And so I would imagine that at this point, it has to be, I, I would think, in at least a couple hundred teachers that have in some way um, come into contact and been impacted by Agency by Design. And spin that out into how many classrooms um, I would probably see thousands of kids. Do you have any sense of how many of those educators were were kind of compelled to attend and participate versus themselves having their own agency to opt in and say, I'm curious, or I already know, or my friend did, and I want to do it? Like, what's the I think the, there? the majority, 
the vast majority are opt-in. Like they heard about it, they heard it was a good program or a good workshop, and they really wanted to, to know more. I mean, I, what I'm finding is teachers are hungry for alternate ways of teaching, teaching that involves more um, hands-on and more what I call minds-on. You know, not just the rote, scripted programs that we've been teaching, but, but um, that gives students an opportunity to show what they know in different ways, and also for teachers to, to teach in a different way, kind of step aside and, and give their students more opportunity to, to be leaders in. And so how, how what's, what are the different ways that individual teachers or leaders or the central office or charter run home offices or educators, how do people get to know agency by design and get started and, and join the community? There is a website, Agency by Design Oakland. Um, I think it's abdoakland.org. And it showcases all the great work that teachers have been doing over the last several years with Agency by Design. And also, it, there, you can contest, contact us there. You can also contact me at paula.mitchell at ousd.org. <laughs> um, but the website is a really great way to get an overview of what's happening, what the programs are all about, what also what services we offer. So we have the fellowship is one thing. Um, and that's beginning, that's already in place for this year. But we also offer workshops um, that we can tailor to the needs of the organization. You mentioned, you know, when you gave out your email address, that's an OUSD.org email address. So how does that work? Are you, you work for ABD and for Grass Valley? Are you, t are you not working for Grass Valley anymore? How does it all connect? I do both. You? you do both? I do both, How yes. do you do that? <laughs> <laughs> I use my superhuman skills. That's my superpower. <laughs> um, I, I just really believe in the work. And so I committed myself to, I believe in, maker-centered learning in hands-on, engaging curriculum for kids of Oakland. And I'm very dedicated to my school site of Grass Valley. I want to, I mean, I started the maker program. It's continuing. Um, because of funding, it's, it's more challenging, but I want to make sure that it continues. And so I am committed to being there. Also, I love working with kids. I'm a teacher. So I don't want to leave the kids. That, that's something that's really important. But I also see the importance of helping more teachers um, feel comfortable and empowered to make changes in their own classrooms that allows their students to become more empowered and um, take on learning in a new way. So I'm committed to, to both things. And I've, Right now, this is the first year I'm trying it, but I, I have two full days committed to Agency by Design and three days at Grass Valley um, working with the students and teachers there. Um, so I'm not, so, so when I'm working with teachers in the Agency by Design fellowship cohort, the things that I'm talking about, I feel like are, are grounded in reality because I'm actually doing it at my school site. It's not just, oh, I have these theories and I think this is what's gonna work. It's like, no, I've tried this, a lot of these things out and, and this is what works for me at my site and maybe it'll work for you. So we're gonna, I think, get to our five-ish questions in just a moment, but before we do, you mentioned this 
question about measurement and how do you measure when kids are making these things or you're talking about thinking routines and mindset. So does agency by design or do you yourself have you what have you come up with so far? How how do you measure success with the program, say the fellowship, or how do how would you hope that the fellows themselves measure the impact of the pedagogy with their own students? Ooh, that's a that's an excellent question because it's it's still a work in progress. But one of the things that we've used mainly is rubrics. Um, for my program at Grass Valley, we create our own rubrics for the units, and then the teachers can assess students based on the rubric, but also the students can assess themselves. And we're doing something similar with Agency by Design, where we have a rubric of where they think their school is as a whole, and the, the fellows um, are gonna get an opportunity to, to do that when we meet, um, to, to kind of use the rubric to rate themselves. Um, but mostly what I've seen people using in the Maker Center or Maker Ed world is mostly rubrics to assess how competent or how well the kids are doing. Um, I think a less, it, it's, it's hard to measure these things because they're not, it's not black and white and a yes or no or multiple choice type of thing. Um, but another way is just to look at the quality of the work that the kids are producing. Uh, and also, for us at Grass Valley, like the longevity of content knowledge, too, is a way. Like, if we can come back to something that we covered at the beginning of the year through one of our projects and reference it, and the kids can still talk about what they learned in a really meaningful and connected to what they're doing now, then we know that we've been successful. Are there, are there any uh, direct or maybe indirect measurements that might also inform your assessment? I'm, I'm wondering, for example, um, about school climate um, or family engagement. Have you noticed any changes that you might say as a result of this more engaging, more um, student-centered curriculum, we see these improvements elsewhere? Yes, I think that um, for school climate, it definitely has made a difference. Uh, kids who can sometimes be really off task uh, in class or have problems on the yard, the given opportunities at my school when I know when we're doing maker projects and, and it's like maker week, we have, we have a whole week dedicated to doing their final project. Like the kids are there, they're focused, they wanna do it, they're pretty much on task. Like behaviors change significantly, we see, um, during that time. And also with the kids um, at recess, because we had the maker space open at recess for kids to come in. Uh, the kids who sometimes get in most trouble on the yard will come in and they'll, be, they'll have something to really engage them and then those problems aren't happening. And then another thing that I think we've seen at Grass Valley is just the, the increase in families who wanna come because of the program that's being offered. That's, uh, like it, it's pretty directly correlated to the rise in interest. And at the same time, we've had, um, we've had some vacancies, some openings in our staff, 
And the teachers who have come to apply have said they've come because of the program that we have. They're really excited that there's maker program and that there's other enrichment opportunities. So those are some less direct but very important ways to figure out the success of the program. Absolutely. Awesome. Okay. Uh, So here we go. Five-ish questions. Um, And I'll I'll start this time. Start. Uh, I don't usually, I think you usually do, but Randy, but it's all good. Mm -hmm. Um, So Paula, what is your most radical education idea and what might you be uncomfortable or afraid to offer because someone or some group might get upset or angry or anything like that? Yeah, well, I have a number of ideas. I don't know how radical they are, but I know they're outside of the mainstream of public education. So, because that's my purview is public education. So, one of the things that I think should change, I, that I would be really excited to see change, is um, grades. And I am talking about grades in two ways um, grading, giving grades for work, and also like grade level grades. I think having kids grouped based on maybe ability or interest is a a really interesting way of going about it and um and that doesn't happen in public school it's like you're in you're this age you're at this grade that's where you are so for me it feels radical because it doesn't happen in public education and not to grade things like not to have uh, you did this assignment so you get an A, a B, a C or a plus or a smiley face or whatever is um, like we don't do that we grade everything uh, instead having tests so those are things that I I would love to see change like having not having grades in any kind of way mm-hmm. <laughs> Who, who do you consider to be the most innovative voice in education today and why? And is there anything that this person might still get wrong in your view? This is a hard question for me because I'm not, I don't really follow trends and people, like I don't know who, who's big in education right now. So I can only speak to who I'm, whose work I've, um, I've read or am, am reading currently. And there's two people, Zaretta Hammond, who, um, uh, who is all about um, like cultural responsive teaching in the brain, and, uh, and um, Elena Aguilar, who uh, is all about transformational coaching. And the two intersect for me because of, of what I do. Um, I think uh, I'm really all about culturally responsive teaching, and I think Zaretta's work is is really important in how it um, it it gives a framework for helping what she calls dependent students, like transfer the uh, give them the ability to handle a heavier cognitive load. And I think maker center learning is the perfect vehicle for that. So I see these intersections. And then the coaching piece is because I'm coaching now and I wanna continue to get better at that. And so reading Elena Aguilar's Art of Coaching is really helping me, particularly 
her stance as it being transformational, transformational coach. And I actually think Zaretta's stance is the same thing. It's, these are transformational people. And it just so happens that both of them are based in Oakland, which I think is really cool. And I did not know that when I started reading their work. So for me, that's what's really exciting. Um, I can't say what they get wrong. What they've got. I'm not going to say they've got anything wrong at this point. I, I can't critique them like that. I'm just, I'm really excited by their work. If you were superintendent of Oakland Unified School District, what is the first thing you would do and why? First thing I would do is listen to teachers. I would bring in, I would have, they have town hall meetings for parents, and like they say community, but I would just convene teachers all around Oakland and just have listening sessions and ask teachers what they believe can make Oakland schools better and, and how to go about it. Because teachers in Oakland have so much knowledge and they know what's going on on the ground and that's the most important thing. And, and I think mo a lot of our solutions, a lot of our problems could be solved if we listen to the teachers more. What or who inspires you in Oakland to continue working in education? The kids and the teachers. <laughs> the, I mean, every day I, that I go to schools, I get to see these kids who are really, who really want to learn. Even the kids who seem like they're the most checked out, like there's still this desire in them to learn and to, to be something in the world. And then the teachers who are in Oakland are amazing. So much gets put on teachers and the, the public perception, I think, is, is, is negative and positive, but like a lot of stuff, get, you know, teachers get downed a lot, but the teachers in Oakland are incredible. They are so dedicated and are going in there every day trying to make a difference. And so that's what inspires me both the kids and the teachers. And last question, what do you get to see or experience that you wish everyone else gets to, got to see or experience? How fun school can be when you let kids be kids and explore their passions. That's what I get to see in my maker space and in our maker program at Grass Valley. When kid, you say, what do you want to make? Oh, I want to make uh, a robot that can fly. I want to make uh, uh, I want to make a, a fairy princess wand that lights up. I want, and then they make it and they figure out how, even though I don't know how. It's like together we we figure this out. And I wish everybody could see. Kids are having a great time. I get to have a great time. Teachers get to have a great time. And, it's, and I think if everybody could see that, then they know the value of the kind of maker education, hands-on learning that should really be happening in every school. Paula, thank you so, so much for taking the time to share your, your history your, your passion, where you're focused, how you do the work that you do. We, we are deeply appreciative 
of um, what you've what you brought to us today. So so thanks so much, and I would love to have you come back sometime if uh, if you might be so inclined. This is this has been wonderful. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Awesome. Thanks all. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, Paula, out there listening, thank you so much for uh, coming on and sharing your story with us and your experience and giving us so much time. Listeners, if you want to be in touch with Paula, you can find her at MitchellTeach87 on Twitter. Um, You can also find her on Facebook. You can also learn a lot more about Agency by Design at abdoakland.org and at abdoakland.org. Uh, on Twitter. They have a ton of information going on. Free professional development for teachers right now. She talked about the fellowship. It's a ton of good stuff. Grass Valley maintains a a pretty great website as well. GrassValleyOUSD.org. You can learn more about what's going on there uh, with their maker space and the other projects uh, at the school. You know what I find surprising, Greg, is folks still come up to me on the street and say, you know what, I've listened to the podcast, but I just don't know how to get in touch with you. It's like every day. They just don't know what this Twitter thing is. Yep. So tell us, Randy, could you share? I thought we'd try to clarify yeah. that. So you can find us on Twitter at the GRProj, P-R-O-J. You can find us similarly over on Facebook where we would love for you to like us. Uh, And of course, we've got the website as well, the grproject.com, which uh, is where you'll find the stellar show notes that that Greg composes for every single episode and in a timely manner. Yeah, I think I finally got through the backlog, but I'm sure I'm at least two or three episodes behind. Uh, Sorry, people. Um, Anyone who wants to volunteer on the show notes, you know, anyone can do it. I'm just saying. Uh, But yeah, it's on the list. Uh, but we use that website for all sorts of things. It's uh, Mostly it's a way for you all to get a glimpse at Randy's professional LinkedIn photo, which is really the most important part of the website experience. But it's also a place where you can uh, suggest a guest or suggest a question, find archived episodes, all that good stuff. Uh, and you can also email us at thegrproj at gmail.com. You could also be blogging over there without all of the hassle of maintaining your own blogging website. So That's you, right. We are saving you the trouble. We're helping you, listeners. This That's is about, really what that blog is all about. This is about you. Um, if you've heard something on any podcast that strikes a chord and you'd like to comment on it, uh, we are here to support you. Reach out to us. Let us know what you'd like to write about, and we'd be happy to uh, to host your musings. Um, please take a moment also to head on over to iTunes or to Stitcher, rate and review us. It helps so so much. And as you remember, our favorite online store here at the project uh, is Oaklandish.com, where you get a ten percent discount with the code GR Project Ten. So shop online, save yourself ten percent. And, uh, and, the, and you'll also be, end up donating some money automatically uh, over to the Oakland Public Education's funds, A to Z fund. Yep. Uh, you know, Greg and I have a fantastic time. We are so lucky to be able to uh, put in this time and work and uh, chat with, with the guests who, who choose to come and, and share uh, their expertise and insights with, with us and with all of you. Uh, and we hope that that's really coming through. And, and if it is, please take a moment again to, to go um, throw us a like or share the podcast with someone who may not know about it. Um, we are so grateful for your support. Um, and look forward to bringing you more real soon.